Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I was thinking about how we were going to start this episode, and I kept thinking about that movie MacGruber. Have you seen MacGruber? I have not. You're going to have to walk me through this, Steve. Uh, Will, like, Will Forte movie, really funny. It's a parody of 80s action films. And there's a scene at the beginning where Powers Booth and Ryan Phillippe are trying to track down MacGruber because he's retired from... Uh, the Navy SEALs and they find him living in this chapel in a foreign country and he's like building baskets with like little kids and he's like I'm a man of peace now this is how I've lived my life and I was just thinking that I wish we had a cool like prequel like that for this episode because you know we haven't done 36 from the vault, I think since like November of 2020. That's like when our last tour ended. So we've both have been in the wilderness doing God knows what, you know, between now and and back then. I mean, have you been living in a chapel with like young kids? I wish there was a way to do a training montage and podcast form with, you know, a rousing synthesizer heavy. 80s anthem in the background as we we prep for this season like uh yeah i don't know i i have like a serious like uh 80s dead ponytail now does that count yeah you kind of look like mcgruber at the beginning of the movie you have like, <laughs> long hair right you've clearly become a man of peace exactly You're this uh you know like buddha type figure almost uh wow. philosophical you saying i put on um, some weight or is it uh no <laughs> buddha in the spiritual sense not the physical sense sure um, sure but uh yeah i i wish we had a training montage too like you know us welding yeah uh dick's pick cds uh Ooh, you know i and, like that like with the hammer like hitting it and sparks like, flying sparks flying all over the place yeah us like weightlifting 
pairs of headphones uh, and putting them on our heads, you know, to, to get ready to listen. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, and, it's not uh, yeah. too far off because I do I do a lot of my dead listening on the exercise bike. That's been my big pandemic obsession is riding oh. the exercise bike like crazy. And uh, for a while there, uh, my my prep for this season of shows, I feel like we were getting too spoiled by just listening to the Dix Picks. So um, I, I decided I needed to like lower my internal median for what a Grateful Do- Dead show sounds like. So I just started listening to random This Day in Dead History shows and usually trying to pick a year that I wasn't that familiar with. So I ended up in a lot of 80s shows. Uh, but the dangerous part is that when I ride the exercise bike, I, I can put on a show, but then I can't stop it or skip songs the entire time I'm riding. So every so often I'd get an 80s show that would open with like Ico Ico and Victim of the Crime and uh, Brent's eco-ecological anthem (laughs) and I would just be stuck there for like half an hour uh, you know grinding through some of my least favorite dead material but it was it was worth it just to to, just to lower my expectations a little bit for for the, the primo stuff this season. I think for exercising, I would have to stick with one drummer dead, uh, just for like the rhythmic uh, consistency of it. Because especially in the '80s, if you're doing two drummer dead and you're getting that, you know, tennis shoe in the dryer sound, <laughs> right. I just feel like I feel like the uh, exercise bike would break inevitably. It would start <laughs> smoking from my erratic pedaling. Right. And uh, it'd just be bad. I mean, can I ask, like, did you just buy an exercise bike, like, during the pandemic? We did. We did not get a fancy Peloton, but we got, like, a cheaper version of it. So, yeah, it's like, been new pandemic I've, activity. Because I've bought exercise equipment in my life, and I feel like you have a year where you're committed and you're using it. And then after year five, there's... Uh, clothes on it there you know it's like this creature in the corner of your basement that's taunting you that uh, like like you fat failure you haven't used me in years and it just becomes like a a monument to your own uh laziness and ineptitude so i i don't know i i hope that isn't your path that was my path we haven't got to the year mark yet i put like a thousand miles on it last year though so (laughs) hopefully i don't know if we'll keep up that pace once i can actually like go outside again but yeah it's uh that's been my my main dead workshop area uh, for the last couple months so as we return to the stage then like your calves then are going to be in shape oh yeah i'm wearing my bobby short shorts i'm showing them (laughs) off i think my ponytail is a little more jerry than bobby i don't have the uh the beautiful silky hair that robert ware was blessed with oh yeah i have more of the frizzy uh jerry style and you know the the gray hair uh contributes to that as well but uh yeah it's it's a strong ponytail i can't wait till i can go back to live shows and be ponytail guy at a like a like a jazz show (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say you got some length you have some girth you yeah. know it's 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 thick man it's 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 beautiful it's for real yeah yeah i know i feel like uh you know because we're we're doing this over over zoom here i feel like i'm about to have my first drum lesson <laughs> with you like we're we're gonna like i'm gonna you're gonna teach me how to play congas exactly yeah during the course of this which was 
I mean, I reference conga specifically because I know you have a conga thing. I do. I do have a thing against You're not big on the congas. If we ever get to, there's got to be some dead shows with some extraneous percussionists, right? I think I heard some of them whenever I got Ico Ico. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll table that for a future dead show if they have a guest congaist. Well, in this show, too, there's the return of the slide, which I'm I'm excited to talk about. Because as as listeners of the show know, you have a problem with slide. With the Bobby slide, I think it's, um, you know, you have a strong case. But even Jerry slide, you've objected to in the past, which we're going to get to it in this show. I think there's some incredible Jerry slide in this show that I, I, I absolutely love. I'm curious if this is going to be an exception for you or if you... Uh, don't even like the Jerry Slide in, in, in Dick's Picks 19. Well, that's, good. that's a good cliffhanger, Steve. There's a lot of uh, classic 36 from the vault pain points in this show. So uh, yep. I, th- I think we start diving in uh, after our little interlude here. And uh, let's get to it. Let's get back on the on stage. Let's rock. This is 36 from the vault, by the way, presented by Osiris, and I'm Steve. And I'm Rob, and we are here for season three. And we're into the back half, the back 18 of the Dick's Picks collection. Can I say, like, can we call this our winter tour? Because I want to still call it the winter tour when we're doing shows in, like, July. <laughs> I just think that would be funny. I, I can still see uh, snow out my window, so I'm going to call right. it winter. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's... Because I think we're launching our season right after like the beginning of spring, yeah. officially. Official day of spring, yeah. Is isn't it March twentieth or twenty first? Twenty first, one of those so. days. Yep. Um, but I don't know. Let's still call it our winter tour. Yeah, I, we can do winter slash spring. I feel like there's an optimism to this season. You That's know, true. It's the weather's turning. Yep. I think we're, we're coming out of this pandemic. Hopefully. Yep. I think I think our elderly friends and the Grateful Dead are probably you know vaccinated or close to it, essential workers oh, yeah. that they are, uh, and out in California. So uh, yeah, I feel like uh, you know last year was very much a let's stay in our house and listen to the dead and talk about the dead, and this year the dead are kind of the the triumphant soundtrack for returning to human society. Yeah, you know, let, let let's think about this for a minute because like Bob Weir, I would say he's probably been vaccinated. Yeah. I'd say Billy and Mickey have been vaccinated. So, like, you know, the core of Dead & Co. Phil, I'm sure, has been vaccinated. Yeah, Phil with his new liver and everything was, you know, phase one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. He's in danger. you got to protect Phil. Mayor and, like, O'Teal. <laughs> uh, have those guys been vaccinated? I mean, they seem like they're pretty healthy. I would think that they would have to wait until the summertime yeah but maybe because of their proximity to the other guys they got in early i'm gonna put it like at 50 50 the mayor's anti-vax he just seems like the type of dude that is uh like super into health and wellness and is like i'm not gonna put this artificial drug company product in my 
my beautiful veins. Uh, but I think because he is someone who's around seniors a lot, though. True. He might overlook his objection to the vaccination and yeah. say, I just got dead fans to accept me. I'm not going to kill Bob Weir because of my anti-vax stance. You know, so that, that's my speculation there. It, it might be a good way to get him out of there and get somebody new in. Like, oh, yeah, well, this is, uh, you know, safety precautions we have to replace John Mayer with. Uh, I don't know. I don't have a good replacement. Warren Haynes. <laughs> Warren Haynes has probably been vaccinated. He's got yeah, some. He's elderly. Yeah. He has some core comorbidities, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. So he's been vaccinated. So we'll see. I don't know. That that's a storyline that maybe we'll we'll look at as the season <laughs> unfolds. We'll do an investigative report. We'll get Dave Lemieux back on. What's how? What's everybody's vaccination status? Yes, thirty six from the vault. I think yeah, we're gonna do some actual journalism this year because there's <laughs> other podcasts out there that cover the dead. They interview people. They have actual information. Like you listen to their shows, you learn something. Whereas you listen to our show you don't learn anything mm, yeah we might even make you dumber exactly so we have to compete with the shows where you actually learn something so yeah we'll, we're gonna be on the health beat for <laughs> the dead this year i am a science journalist uh in, in my in my real life so I, I i suppose i could do that but i don't i don't, I don't like to mix business and pleasure i have no expertise but uh you know i'm, I'm curious so i think that qualifies me enough um <laughs> Yes, we're talking about uh, Dick's Picks 19 in this episode. This is a show from October 19th, 1973 in uh, Oklahoma City, the Fairgrounds Arena. Um, and I believe this is the complete show. Yes. No, no, no funny business this time around. No funny business. And really, we'll get into this as we talk about the show, but there's not much you would even want to cut. I, I, th- th- there's, I have some suggestions for edits just to make this a tighter listen, but for the most part... I think this is a really strong album. This is actually one of the first Dix Picks I ever had. You know, longtime listeners of the show will know that Dix Picks 1 was my first Dix Picks. This was probably among my first two or three or four because I liked 1973 because Dix Picks 1, so I was drawn to this one. It was probably also available at my local used CD store, so that was probably also why I bought it. Um, But uh, 1973, man... What a great way to enter into season three. I, I, I couldn't ask for a better year. It's an interesting one, particularly because like it's already the third 1973 Dix Picks, right? And we've had a couple 1974s too. So, uh, oh, yeah. It's interesting to me that you were already picking shows from 73. I guess it makes sense if you got volume one first. But 73 and 74, I think we've talked about before, is sort of like the advanced level, graduate level. Grateful Dead, like the true Deadheads favorite years are 73 and 74 because they can be a little more challenging than your 77s or your 72s or your other sort of peak uh, years of Grateful Dead. So, yeah, they're really covering this area well. And of course, it was Dick's favorite era. uh, And we're in the post Dick era. But Dave is uh, keeping that keeping that uh, run alive by by working backwards here. That's the other thing is that since we've been going through it in terms of uh, chronologically in terms of the volumes we started out in december 73 we went back to november november december and now we're back in october so it's kind of interesting to see this band evolve in reverse yeah and in terms of this album release this uh dicks picks volume came out in october of 2000 the same month as kid a if Mm. i can do a call back to our (laughs) previous curveball um and uh, like you said, it was the third Dix Picks from 
1973, uh, like that fall, winter, or like early winter period. Um, really great uh, time. This was also around the time, too, that The Dead released uh, View from the Vault, the the video it's it's like of a show from 1990 right i guess it would have been yeah and have you seen that show like i actually i have the box set of of dead videos i don't know when that came out i got it as a promo actually okay years ago so i've seen that one like the the rfk show from 91 is in there i know there's like some 87 shows i think um like dead ahead is in there as well as the grateful dead movie um, I don't know when that box set came out. I think that came out probably seven or eight years later. Um, yeah, I have not watched any of the View from the Vaults. Uh, just I think it's because they're from an era that I don't normally go to. Because, right, it's three 90s shows. And then I, I think the last one is a Dylan show from 87. So, yeah, I haven't really dug into them. I think they're you can find them pretty easily on YouTube and Maybe some of them were shakedown streams uh, last year, so maybe I, I have seen so. one that it, and I didn't realize it was a view from the vault show. But yeah, I, I, I don't know that era. I, I understand that's where they have probably the best quality video from, but uh, it, it's not the era where I particularly want to watch the dead. <laughs> like <laughs> I would listen to it, but like you know, in terms of like visual entertainment, I'm not sure that that's the most interesting era to watch i don't know what do you think oh man you can just bounce quarters off of bob's legs on those shows <laughs> it's incredible incredible specimen uh which you're going for the bob weir body right now with, with the exercise bike i think i'd be more like a jerry garcia body like where he was wearing shorts not to show off but just because it was like too hot like, Practical he, like he was, yeah he's probably like the last guy on earth to like wear shorts, and even <laughs> so, you know it must have been hot if, if Jerry's putting on shorts. Exactly. It's like it's like okay, whatever. It's like I this isn't my thing, but comfortability over everything else. Um, also, this album for all you uh, cover art enthusiasts out there, this is the beginning of the lightning bolt right. era of Dick's Picks, uh, which extends through Dick's Picks twenty four. So we're gonna be covering all of the lightning bolt. Dick's Picks albums this season. And then 25 is the red cover with the drawing of Dick. Right. The, the liquor bottle cover, I think we yes. called it before. Yeah. And I, I noticed too that uh, that that same sort of like engraved photo of Dick, like gazing lovingly at a tape, that's uh, that's on the actual discs uh, around this time, right? You're the, the physical media man, you can tell us. I know for 19, it's like a blue disc, I think, with yellow type. I don't have the CDs in front of me right now, but I, I'm i trying to remember. Like, I, 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 is like his image like sort of embossed on the disc? Yeah, it looks like it. I'm looking at the okay. great deaddisc.com, which has nice uh, images of all the disc pics. And uh, since I remain a... Uh, physical media denialist, <laughs> even though I am now a Dave's Pick subscriber. Uh, yeah, nice, nice blue color with a gold uh, engraving of Dick examining a, a reel-to-reel tape in the vault. So, uh, yeah, what, how do you feel about the lightning bolts? Not a huge fan, I have to say. I'm, I'm a red and black purist. I've said that on this show. Yeah, um, I liked the like magic carpet ticket thing, like <laughs> where you had like gorillas on it and stuff. Yeah. Or you know, there's one like where there's like a, like a Revolutionary War soldier on right. the ticket. I think that's the is that twelve? Yeah, Fourteen. The one in Boston. No, twelve. You're right. Twelve. 
Um, so Lightning Bolt's all right. I mean, it gets worse. I, I feel like the art got worse for Dick's picks as they went along. Like the once you start getting in, into the upper twenties and thirties, it's uh, it, it's looking cheaper and cheaper, mm-hmm. which is a weird trajectory <laughs> to take. And by the way. You buried the lead there that you're a Dave's Pick subscriber now, which I'm very happy. I feel like I maybe influenced that. So uh, yeah, it was a bit ten percent you, ninety percent Dave himself. Let's say so. I'll take the ten. <laughs> I'll take the ten percent there. Dave's Pick's art is great. Oh yeah, I love the Dave's art, and it looks cool on the inside. Covers are cool. They really upped their game with that, for sure. And, and thus far, the art has been the only thing I've been able to enjoy with my Dave's picks, because I learned <laughs> that I do not have a way to play CDs uh, currently in my house or in my cars. So Just buy, uh, a, just buy a little boombox. I've been meaning to go to the old resale shop and pick up whatever dusty CD player they got there, but, you know, a pandemic is still happening, so it's been a little tricky. Go on eBay. Go on eBay. You can buy a CD boombox for 20 bucks. Yeah. Probably at the most. I put out a uh, like a social media request for CD player recommendations, and surprisingly, people are still recommending like two thousand dollars CD players. I thought that was a thing of the past, like uh, you know the super hi-fi CD player. I would gladly take a ten dollars Sony Discman that I could plug into my speakers and listen to uh, that beautiful. Williamsburg 78 show that everybody has been talking about. But uh, for now, I can just look at the, the cool skeletons hanging out in their dorm room and look at the nice, very nice pictures. Jerry's looking a little uh, a little frazzled in 78, I would say. But uh, otherwise, yeah, pretty cool uh, album art to, to gaze at. So let's talk a bit about this uh, the 73 uh, tour. When you look at their tour legs from this time, it looks like they would typically do maybe a two or three week run and then have like maybe a month or so of a break and then go back on the road. Uh, you know, there was this run that they had, uh, you know, late summer, early fall that ends in, uh, in September. And then they go back on the road with this show in Oklahoma city on October 19th and 73. And this is the first show of that tour. And I believe it's like an eight show tour. Yeah. Through the Midwest and, and Plains areas. And then they ended up taking a little bit of a break, and then they have the East Coast run, which is those two other Dick's picks that we've listened to are part of that run. That's right. Yeah, it seems like, so this is the same Cutler era. Uh, so Cutler is booking the dead all around the country instead of them just playing the coasts, which is kind of what they did up until he took over in 7071. Uh, and yeah, you're right. It's like three weeks on, three weeks off. It's kind of a strange way to do a tour, but there were a lot of like side things going on too. Like I know Jerry was playing with Olden in the way around this time. He was playing with Merle Saunders at the time. So even though they're taking time off, they're doing their own things. And uh they they kind of I think were restricted a little bit due to their sound system like that they were carrying around. It's not quite official wall of sound sound system yet. It's like the proto wall of sound, uh, but it seems like they would try and just uh, target a geographic area of the country, uh, haul that you know truckload of speakers around. They 
really couldn't do two shows in two different places in two consecutive nights. There's a lot of off nights, even in these three-week runs where they had to play one night here and then have an off day and then another show. So you get kind of a weird tour itinerary around this time. And this is kicking off maybe the weirdest, which is like the dead go, you know, sort of into... Texarkana. <laughs> it's not, it, the, the, it ends up in the Midwest, and there's a lot of the usual Midwest stops, like your Madison and Indianapolis and St. Louis. Uh, but yeah, they, they tried to start in Fort Worth on October 17th. Uh, there are posters you can find online of that show, uh, but it never it didn't happen. It was canceled, probably because they were for poor ticket sale reasons. Uh, and then they went up to Oklahoma City for this show, where I finally got it started. Then into Omaha, uh, Bloomington, Minnesota. I don't even know where Bloomington is. Is that nearby? It's right outside of Minneapolis. Okay. It's like where um, the Mall of America is now. Ah, okay. So I think the dead and other people played there quite a bit. There was a music venue that was there that I can't remember the name of, and it's long since been torn down. Yeah. Um, so that's like that's basically a Minneapolis show. Got it. And then Madison, Indianapolis, St. Louis, and Evanston. They uh, went suburban when they came to Chicago, played at Northwestern. So, so yeah. So this it's a, this is a this is an odd one in the middle of '73, which you know normally is known for classic shows at the usual sort of East Coast West Coast spots. That's part of like what I love about this show. I, I I love it like when the Dead is playing in the middle of the country in some way, and maybe I'm just projecting it onto the music, but I feel like it has a bit of a dustier feel to it, a more wide open feel. Um, and along with just imagining them like playing these places, it's interesting about Oklahoma city at this time, because the dead, they played, um, I believe two shows in 72. And then they played some shows later on in the eighties, Oklahoma at this time did have, uh, the benefit of Leon Russell, who was a big star in the late sixties and early seventies. And he set up his home base in Tulsa. Uh, and he had a label there uh, called Shelter Records, which uh, eventually signed Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. They ended up, uh, you know, decamping in, in, in Tulsa a few years after uh, this show. So I'm, I'm curious to what degree Leon Russell's presence maybe made Oklahoma feel like this was a place that the dead could come to. You know, I'm, I'm sure that helped to grow the community of heads and hippies that were uh you know around at that time i mean this is also around the time when you're really starting to see you know like the outlaw country movement take hold and 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 certainly in texas where you have that co-mingling of you know southern redneck culture and hippie culture coming together so all that stuff is in the background I feel like, of this gig. Yeah, and the other potential reason, not quite Oklahoma, but sort of regionally, that they would have tried to go down there is uh, they were buddies with Doug Som at this time. Is that how you say it, Doug Som? I've never actually said it out loud. Is it Sam? Sam or Som. It's spelled like Som, but it might be Sam. Uh, sorry, Sam heads. Som heads out there. Uh, but uh, oh, we got they, some Sam heads in the house, I'm sure. I'm sure, yeah. There's a lot of crossover with the dead. And in fact, that September tour that you talked about, uh, the Doug Sam Band uh, opened all those shows, and that's also what's known as the Horns Tour uh, in Grateful Dead history, uh, which uh, they, I believe, used two of the brass players from the Doug Sam Band uh, for the second sets of those shows. So it was sort of a unique experiment in Grateful Dead history. The only time, that, of course, they played with, you know, saxophonists uh, 
infrequently, but occasionally uh, throughout their history. But this was the only time where they did a whole run of shows where songs had horn arrangements. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard any of those shows. Like, They're not very well regarded by Deadheads. And I actually find it interesting that they never even released one of those shows uh, as a vault release because it is such a novelty. Uh, but I would say that they're more interesting than good. Yeah. Horn sections are, that's like a, it's like adding garlic to your meal. It like kind of makes everything taste like garlic. You know, if you've got, if you're a rock band with a horn section that doesn't normally have horns, I just think it overwhelms everything and it can be, uh, like often not a good thing. Although with the dead, I will say that the late 80s shows that they did, like with uh, Branford Marsalis and then uh, Clarence Clemens, the Clemens, I think, Cle- I know Clemens played with Jerry Garcia band. I don't think he did. Did he ever play with he the dead? He did with the dead too, I believe. Yes. Okay. Certainly Branford Marsalis. I, I, I feel like that is pretty well known because of Without a Net mm. and uh, like the version of Eyes of the World on there that Marsalis plays on, I think is actually pretty great. But a saxophonist is different than a whole horn section. Well, and, you know, it was only two people. I believe it was a trumpet and a saxophone. Uh, Guys that I haven't heard of, if you want to know more about it, there is, of course, a great Lost Live Dead blog post that exhaustively goes into these two guys and their history. They were sort of session dudes, I guess, that uh, were playing with Doug Sam and the dead decided to bring them out. And they kind of play the same songs every night. Like, they always play Eyes of the World, which makes sense. That is kind of the traditional... Uh, dead with horns song uh, but they are you know nowhere near the caliber of a Marsalis or Ornette Coleman or the other people that they played it with so it's you know it's it's worth listening there's you know they play trucking with them I think part of the problem is that the arrangements are like incredibly simplistic it wasn't like they sat down and like we're going to write out horn charts for these guys to do something interesting. Uh, so that's not very satisfying. And then they kind of compete for space, improvisational space, with Jerry and with the rest of the dead. Uh, and deadheads don't like that. <laughs> they don't want anybody but Jerry soloing. You know, it's worth listening to, and I, I mean, I think it sets the stage for this show interestingly, too, because, you know, as you said, this is the first show of the next sort of leg of Fall 73. Uh, so when they get to, say, Eyes of the World in this show, it's the first Eyes of the World they've played without the, the you know, guest stars on horns in a couple months, even though they played it a ton in 73. It's kind of like, Eyes of the World is definitely a song that got jazzier over the course of 73 and 74. So it's sort of an interesting experiment to hear what it sounds like after this uh, brass experiment. It's interesting too, because this show also comes right after the release of Wake of the Flood, which came out on October 15th, 73. So it's four days after that. Although I feel like the dead didn't necessarily tour with the thought of supporting an album. And I I actually feel like that is 
a relatively later phenomenon. I feel like that was true of a lot of bands at that time. They weren't necessarily touring um, with the thought of actively promoting an album. Although the Dead do play a lot of material from Wake of the Flood in this show. Yeah, they play four of seven songs, I believe. So it's it's a little bit promo. But you know, the thing with the Dead is they had been playing those songs all year. <laughs> like before right. wake of the flood came out so and that's I, what I, I mean i think that was more common back then right because there were a couple other like neil young used to do this all the time and still does this where he would go out on tour for harvest and play you know half the show would be new unreleased material that sounded nothing like harvest that's right. what became time fades away right as far away from harvest as you can go uh so the early 70s were a great time for bands just like you know challenging their audience to stick with them with a bunch of songs that they wouldn't have possibly heard before they showed up that night. Yeah, I mean, I think that the PR machine was still being built at that time. It wasn't necess- you know, it wasn't a science the way that it eventually became, you know, like where you had everything structured um in that way. I mean, it's funny to imagine like Jerry between songs being like, "Got a new album out." It's called Wake of the Flood. Yeah. You know, go go pick it up at your nearest store. You know, like him doing something like that. It just seems totally strange. Though, on the other hand, they might have felt a little more pressure to promote Wake of the Flood because it's the first one on their own record label. The first one they self-released after they got out of the Warner Brothers uh, contract. So uh, due to that, they may have... They had a little more skin in the game for selling records than they had previously. So we got, we got a merch table in the back. <laughs> uh, between sets, just come over and say hello. Right. Pick up, pick up the record. Pick up some some shirts. Some, right. Some dead gear. I, I could see Bob doing that. <laughs> but over, he didn't though. They didn't. They didn't do that. Over the know. climax of Johnny Be Good, like <laughs> we're gonna play. Yeah, on your way out to the parking lot. Yeah. Pick up a record, make Sub- it the flood. Subscribe to our mailing list. Grateful Dead Records. Yeah, like and subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we should also do a quick shout out to the venue here. You know, like we said, it's Oklahoma City Fairgrounds Arena, later known as Jim Norick Arena. Um, and this was the home of the minor league hockey team, the Blazers. Yeah. Which I feel like we have a continuing trend here of jam bands playing minor league hockey arenas. I, I feel like that is like a natural habitat. The best, yeah. For, for jam bands in the 70s and 80s and 90s and, and beyond. So it's always exciting when we get a good minor league hockey arena show. Right. Uh, capacity, I wonder what it was for this show specifically. I guess it ranges from like 8,500 to 11,000 at this venue. I would guess that it would be closer to 8,500. Yeah, it may also be irrelevant because, I mean, it's it's always hard to tell from a soundboard recording, but I'm going to wager there were far less than capacity at this show. It sounds like a poorly attended show to me. Uh, and and it's a weird, like like we said, it's a weird region for the dead to go into. They didn't really have a foothold there. Uh, when they played in Oklahoma City the year before, they played a 2,500-seat venue, the Oklahoma City Music Hall. So I don't think they got significantly larger uh, in a general popularity sense between 72 and 73 and so to jump from 2500 to 8500 i i would guess it was about a half sold arena uh on this night from the just from the sound of it the word of mouth got out about all the bobby cowboy songs well that's thought, the thing yeah i was gonna say we love cowboy songs right we're, we're from oklahoma city so let's go see the dead play right. 
a bunch of cowboy songs. I, I was going to mention that, you know, it, it might have been a minor league hockey arena, but I think what it's more used for is rodeos. And the uh, combination of rodeo venue and Bob Ware, it, you, you oh, know man. where the set list is going to go. And uh, I'm kind of interested in whether uh, the Oklahoma City crowd enjoyed this or found it condescending <laughs> that these California boys are coming in and uh, playing country covers uh, from our neck of the woods. And maybe... I mean, I think you could, again, contextualize it with what I was talking about before with like the outlaw country movement, you know, where that cross-pollination was already taking place elsewhere. So if you're a Willie Nelson fan, it would maybe make sense to see the dead do that. I, so, but the point being is that there's a ton of cowboy songs in this set. I feel like even more than usual, mm. although maybe it's just because we haven't done a Dick's Picks episode in a while and I'm uh, more sensitive to the cowboy. But I was feeling very cowboy <laughs> listening to the show. Right. It's crazy. Um, also, another thing before we leave the venue here, it's uh, apparently the largest roof of its kind in yeah, the world a catenary roof i had to look this up this is arch architecture minute on 36 from the vault new feature for season three architecture minute uh yeah no i guess, I guess it, it, they described it online as sort of like a tennis racket it was a bunch of steel cables going across the ceiling that supported the roof it, it no longer has this roof because i guess it started falling down in the 2000s but yeah uh it is an architectural marvel uh you can look at it it kind of looks like a giant muffin it's sort of a dome, but it has like straight down sides. So it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's an odd looking building. So the dead, they blew off the biggest roof in the world yeah. with this show. That's why they had to replace it because it was crumbling from 73. I think Phil alone probably uh, set in motion oh, the, yeah. <laughs> the structural uh, failings of this roof many years later. Another preview of the show, Phil Bombs Galore. Yeah. As we come along, it's pretty great. I'm calling it already. I never want to give much away, but we've all heard the record. If you're listening to this podcast, you've probably heard this record. <laughs> I'm calling Phil as like the MVP of this show. At least the co-MVP. I love Phil in this show. We'll get to it. Uh, let's set up the scene here. We'll talk about what else was going on in pop culture at the time of this show. Uh, the number one song in America this week in uh, October of 73, Half Breed mm. by Cher. Yeah. Number one for uh, two weeks. Uh, are you familiar with this song? Yeah, yeah. I, I had heard it before and went back to listen to it again just because, you know, as you noted in our notes, uh, possibly not the most... Uh, not the best taste song in the world. Uh, might play a little differently in 2021. I think Cher's heart was in the right place with this. But yeah, I mean, what, what are some of the lyrics here? Uh, my father married a pure Cherokee. My mother's people were ashamed of me. The Indians said that I was white by law. The white man 
always called me Indian squaw. Half-breed, that's all I ever heard. Half-breed, how I learned the word. Half-breed, how I learned to hate the word. Excuse me. Half-breed, she's no good. They warned. Both sides were against me since the day I was born. So it's, a, you know, it's sympathetic to the main character's plight. Uh, I actually looked it's up. A- I was like, is this autobiographical? Is Cher actually half Cherokee? Or, um, she's not. <laughs> <laughs> if she was... I it would probably be I would probably allow it. Um, yeah, right. But right. you're right. It's not it's not so bad. I mean, the worst part of it is that in the background there's somebody doing like a hiya 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 hiya, which yeah. is uh, yeah, you're not gonna get away with that anymore. Not um, great. But the you know as a story song, it's like you know it's kind of like a western right. sort of story. Something you know it's like a me and my uncle type of thing, but uh, just a little you know, dealing with issues of, of race in the old American West. Yeah, I think Cher appropriating the the pain of, uh, you know, people with from a mixed background gives us an unsavory flavor. Every, like, photo of her from this time, too, is wearing, like, a giant Native American headdress and, <laughs> like, a spangly version of uh, tribal attire. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of... Um, yeah, a lot of things that wouldn't fly in today's modern media. Pretty schlocky. Pretty schlocky song. I mean, there's some great songs from this time that were like near the top of the charts. You had Angie by the Rolling Stones. You have We're an American Band by Grand Funk Railroad. Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. Midnight Train to Georgia. Um, all classics. All better than uh, Half Breed. Uh, <laughs> I would say but, so, you know. Yeah. It's just incredible the songs that could be number one at that time. Yeah, you could. The Stones could have a number one hit. Grand Funk Railroad could have a number one hit. Um, you know, rock bands were still making pop music in 1973. Yeah, and everything uh, except for we're an American band. Everything on there is like these like extremely lush, ornate, stringy arrangements. Uh, it's kind of interesting because we're not really into the disco era yet, but you can hear sort of the, the roots of it forming. Like Half-Breed sounds very disco, even though it's only right. 73. Uh, and I think it's actually the Wrecking Crew on Half-Breed. So if you're looking for something else salvageable from it, it's got a good uh, Wrecking Crew session vibe underneath it. But yeah, I don't know. Of those five, I'm taking Grand Funk. Even Angie, I have a sister named Angie, so I have a soft spot for it, but Angie's kind of a a, a little too saccharine for it. Kind of a masterpiece, you mean? <laughs> it's kind of an amazing song. Well, My you were going to talk about that Goat's Head Soup is number one, and I think we're on different sides on Goat's Head Soup. Well, yeah, okay, the number one um, album in America right now, the, the week of the show, Goat's Head Soup by the Rolling Stones, the number one album for four weeks. I love this album. This is like the peak of... Like sloppy and drugged out Rolling Stones, you know. This is like the Hangover record from Exile on Main Street. Yeah, that's the thing. I, th- I mean, Exile is the peak of sloppy and drugged out Rolling Stones, isn't it? Goat's Head Soup is. I, I guess you could call it the Hangover, but that means it's not as good. The thing, the thing with Exile though, is that they're drugged out, but that's a pretty tight record. Like, I don't think of that being sloppy. It's murky, but like those songs are airtight. Like, I, I feel like there's this. Um, catatonia starting to set in with <laughs> goat's head soup especially with keith yeah um that i i find fascinating to listen to i i i mean again stones to me i love the stones and this was around the time where the subtext of their records was 
sometimes more interesting than the text. Mm-hmm. Although I think there's great songs like Goat Head, Goat's Head Soup. I love It's Only Rock and Roll. I think that's like a maybe the most underrated Stones record. Black and Blue's a mess, but I, <laughs> I, I love it. And Some Girls, of course, you know, is a is a classic. Are you aware of Keith Richards and how he feels about the Grateful Dead? Well, this is news to me. Uh, tell me, explain what you dug up here. Yeah, he did an interview with Billboard magazine in uh, 2015. I think it was when he put out his record that I cannot remember right now. I think the word heart is in the title. <laughs> so it's a solo record that he made. Um, and the reporter asked Keith about Fairly Well because that had just taken place at the time of the interview. And um, Keith says, the Grateful Dead is where everybody got it wrong. Just poodling about for hours and hours. Jerry Garcia, boring shit, man. Sorry, Jerry. <laughs> I like poodling Ooh. instead of noodling. Yeah, I was like, I, poodling? I, I, don't, I don't agree with the sentiment, of course, but uh, poodling is like a new you know, epithet we can lob at jam bands that aren't to our liking. <laughs> They're not noodling. They're poodling. It's it, it's like cute noodling. You know, it's adorable noodling. Right. Annoyingly adorable. Yeah. Jerry playing a poodle on stage or something. <laughs> That's what I'm imagining with that. But, uh, you know, I thought Keith would be the one who would give the dead a chance. I would assume Mick Jagger would not like the dead because he's always been much more sort of fashion conscious and, and trend conscious. But, uh, you know, Keith... He's hanging out with like Rastafarians all day long. He's like smoking incredible weed. <laughs> I would think that he might appreciate the dead, but no, he didn't like the dead. And he's actually saying that they were the beginning of the end, I guess, of the 60s dream or whatever. I'm not sure what he means by that. Well, the other thing is like that they share so much uh, interests, especially early on, right? To the point that they covered... The same songs they both do right. around and around. Of course, they both do. Uh, it's all over now. Uh, the Dead eventually covered the Stones very poorly <laughs> in the eighties and nineties when they did Satisfaction. Uh, um, yeah. But it's like uh, you would think. I don't know. I mean, like there's Altamont too. There's the Altamont connection. There's the Altamont connection, and maybe there's still some bad blood there. I know the Stones have always felt like they were the villains, portrayed as the villains, even though the Dead had a lot more to do with uh, sort of the organization of the events and, of course, the involvement of the Hells Angels and whatnot. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, the Stones and the Dead are both great bands, but great for very different reasons. And I personally do not like when the Stones jam. I would say the only exception is Can't You Hear Me Knocking, which is great. Uh, but I think is as much Mick Taylor as anybody. Uh, and then, you know, the Midnight Ramblers is kind of like where the stones would loosen up, and I despise Midnight Rambler. What? I know this is where we disagree. What? I do not think the stones were a very good live band, and part of that is that I think Midnight Rambler is just... Uh, <laughs> That it's just them poodling around for hours and hours. <laughs> I knew that you were like sort of meh on the Stones as a live band, but I didn't know specifically you don't like Midnight Rambler. I do not like Midnight Rambler. Are we breaking up? Are we not even getting to the show? Well, we're not. Our our, our Rolling Stones podcast is canceled. We're not doing that. The, well, the Rolling Stones podcast would, yeah, that would be a fist fight every episode. 36 tons <laughs> from the vault is never going to happen. Um that, that's genuinely shocking to me, because right. <laughs> the, the uh, Get Your Yaya's Out, Midnight Rambler. 
I think be, long before we this smoking. podcast was even a twinkle in our eye, we were arguing on Twitter over whether the Rolling Stones were a good live band or not. It might have been our first social interaction, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, I just uh, but that yeah, song it's, specifically, uh, you not liking it, it just blows my mind. But yeah, that's my hot take. Stones bad live. Oh man, I mean, I I definitely agree that like so, like a lot of their live records aren't very good, but uh, get your yayas out. I think is great and. Midnight Rambler, I think, is great. No more 36 Tongues from the Vault. That, that <laughs> podcast is canceled. We, we're sticking with the dead. Sorry, everybody. I can't get no satisfaction. One film in America in October 73, The Way We Were, with Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford. I have not seen this movie. No. I think my mom likes it, probably. She likes Barbara Streisand movies. Uh, oh, it's a not mom high classic. on my list to catch. Yeah, definitely a mom classic. I like uh, What's Up, Doc, from this time. It's a Barbara Streisand movie directed by Peter Bogdanovich. That's, right, yeah. That's a great movie. Um, but yeah, uh, not seeing The Way We Were. Um, other films released this month, October 73. Martin Scorsese's Bean Streets, Terrence Malick's Badlands, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, and uh, a movie called Charlie Varick, which is a great heist movie directed by Don Siegel and starring Walter Matthau. Um, there's also another movie that uh, I actually own on Blu-ray, but I have not seen it yet. I bought it during a Kino Lorber flash sale. It's called That'll Be the Day, and it stars David Essex. And Ringo Starr and the Keith Moon is in it too, and uh, it's like this British coming of age movie. Is it and, something to do with Buddy Holly? Um, I think it's set in the late fifties. I don't think Buddy Holly's in it. I think, th- but I think there's like a lot of fifties songs in it, and it kind of seems like, and I'm just basing this on the box that it's like a British American graffiti. That was going to be my guess. Yeah. Um, but I bought it because Ringo Starr and Keith Moon are in it, so I'm. I have not seen that, but that looks good. Well, bit you know, based on the like twenty year nostalgia rule. I mean, it's right around the American Graffiti was right around this time too, right? So everybody's yep, uh, looking back at the fifties, happy days, and yep. uh, that's kind of you know the Chuck Berry thing too with the Dead is that's true. Bringing back the fifties and the seventies, and you know we we always that's like a running gag on this show. We talk about the Chuck Berry covers. At least they weren't doing Beach Boys covers. Can you imagine that? <laughs> <laughs> the Beach Boys are a big part of American Graffiti. Yeah, they were doing like four oh like four oh nine or Serpent Safari or something. <laughs> How like awful that would be. Um, the number one TV show in America. We'll come. We'll come back from. We'll do the top five here. Number five, Hawaii Five O. Number four, Mash. 
Number three, Sanford and Son. Number two, the Waltons, which I'm a little surprised that's as high as this is, considering all the heavy hitters that we have here. I think it's like, um, you know, post-hippie backlash. Yeah, exactly. Very like comforting. The Waltons was the, uh, yeah, the reactionary favorite. All the Nixon voters probably watching the there Waltons. Exactly. Fantasizing about whatever was on the, I've never even seen that show. I, the only thing I know about it is that like they all go to sleep. Yeah, and they turn off the lights and they say goodnight, John Boy. Goodnight, Jim Bob, and yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it goes on for twenty minutes, and people people loved it. That was um, the whole show, I think. Yeah, it's just them waking up, and then going back to bed because it takes forever to say <laughs> goodnight and good morning to everybody. Number one show in America. Take a guess. It's all in the family. All in the family. Now, I actually looked this up because you know we've talked a lot about all in the family in this show because that was like the number one show for like much of the seventies. But we never like really checked to see if there's like a dead connection to All in the Family. And there is a very small connection. There was an episode that aired in 1976. It was called The Babysitter. And apparently the plot of this episode was Meathead and Gloria, they have a kid and they get a babysitter. And it's like a, a it's like the student of Meathead's and like her hippie boyfriend. And when Archie Bunker sees the hippie, he gets really upset. So shenanigans apparently ensue there. But like one of the signifiers of the hippie is that he's holding two records. One is It's Only Rock and Roll by the Rolling Stones. And the other is Blues for Allah by the Grateful Dead. So I don't know if that's on YouTube, but it would be kind of interesting to see Archie Bunker. I wonder if he like he holds blues for Allah at some point. He goes, ah, what is this? <laughs> if that They're exists. taking drugs. That's the, uh, th- that'll be our cover art for this season. That'd be amazing. <laughs> Archie Bunker holding blues for Allah. Sounds like the perfect marketing image for us. Yeah, if there's anyone out there that is like a all in the family head and you just have like stacks of VH, like VHS <laughs> tapes, if you can dig out the babysitter for us, uh, we'd love to see it. Just to fast forward to the Grateful Dead scene. Well, I read further that this episode is uh, historic for having the first full frontal nudity ever shown on TV because at what? one point, because Archie Bunker uh, changes the infants at one point and they showed the infant in, in the nude while he was changing a diaper. And apparently that is known as the first time like genitals had ever been shown on television and they, they had wow. to cut it out of subsequent airings. The nude scene had to come out of the other airings. So, so uh, is it a boy baby or a girl baby? That I did not see. Okay, um, but yeah, it's uh, it was wow. controversial for the time. Even uh, even baby nudity was frowned upon <laughs> in these these <laughs> days of the Waltons and all in the family top of the oh, charts. Oh man, yeah. So in a way, you could give the Grateful Dead credit for this. We could say that the Grateful <laughs> Dead helped introduce baby genitalia. To mainstream America. Loosening the morals of society to the point that you could show show babies junk on the air. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. 
Listen wherever you get podcasts. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we are finally at the show part of our episode. Uh, again, this is Dick's Picks 19 uh, from Oklahoma City, October 19th, uh, 1973. And uh, we get started in a familiar place. <laughs> Who's there to welcome us? Why, it's Charles no. Barry. <laughs> it's Charles Barry <laughs> with a little promised land. And, you know, I like promised land as an opener. I, I think it's a good opener. Not my favorite opener, but this is definitely my preferred place for the berry. If you're going to put a berry somewhere, make it a promised land at the start of the show. I noticed, too, that the, 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 that the caveat emptor on the disc refers to a rather skeevy overture. Mm. And I assume that's referring to the beginning of the song. It sounds, I don't know, if, it sounds like it's the recording is maybe a little muddy. I think it's a little bit the recording and a little bit the sound mix because uh, there's the usual Grateful Dead problem of they start playing and not all the instruments are turned on or, you know, turned up properly on the board or whatever the issue is. So you get like a good minute or so of uh, them working out the balance. Uh, I think Jerry is pretty much inaudible at the start and, you know, they, they figure it out and I'm coming into this season with positivity and I, was, I actually really liked Promised Land here and Promised Land is the perfect song to kind of work out the those sonic kinks right exactly nice and simple and it it even maybe adds to it a little bit because i agree they kind of they kind of like layer in in a cool way it's not intentional at all the dead could never pull off something so uh you know orchestrated but it it, it works as just sort of like a accidentally graceful stumble into the show yeah i think with a song as straightforward as this that any way you can mess it up a little bit is going to make it more interesting so having that little technical snafu at the beginning and then it becomes you know more powerful and clear as the song progresses it actually is a pretty cool way to get started here yeah. with dick's picks 19 on a meta level too promised land is the perfect song for these rando grateful dead shows in you know the, the scattered corners of the country just because it, it is a song about you know chuck berry touring america and being in sort of a haze and not knowing what cities he's in so you know if, if if there is an allowable time for a chuck berry cover i think this is like the, the sweet spot uh, oh yeah it's definitely getting the butts out of the seats you know because exactly. even even you and i taking shots at chuck berry covers if we saw the dead in 73 and they're playing promised land we're getting up we're gonna start I'm dancing yeah. You can't you can't deny it if you're in the room. Um let's move on to Sugary next. I I feel like in this entire 
uh, first disc. There's some weird tempo things going on. And I just wonder to what degree the dead were kind of playing themselves back into tour shape. Because this feels pretty slow, even for Sugary. And I like this version, but I don't know. I, maybe it's because I have all these great 77 Sugaries that we've heard on my brain. Where I, they would play it for 15 minutes and Jerry would really take that solo for a walk and the song and it, it was just a much tighter presentation this is almost like a little too loosey-goosey for me where it gets a little sleepy and i i agree and i think this is going to be kind of a recurring theme of the show i find this to be a very sleepy show uh which is surprising to me in some ways since it is like a tour opener and you would think that there would be like a lot of energy but maybe this you know theory i had early on about it being sort of a half full room might have brought you know counterbalanced out that tour opener energy a little bit and i think you're right they're kind of even though they only had three three and a half weeks off since the last time they played together maybe they're kind of feeling each other out the sound mix is kind of feeling each other out uh as far as this you know early version of the wall of sound uh and there's a lot of songs played surprisingly slow uh here in the first set and it kind of continues through the rest of the show and we'll touch on that but yeah this is a sugary that is just more on the almost on the ballad side rather than being you know sort of the brisker pace we've heard on other versions later versions yeah i'm I'm gonna push back a little bit I, i think that that the pace for me the tempo settles in once we get into the second and third discs the first disc to me is a little listless at times, but um, yeah, it, it, it's interesting to see how that unfolds. Let's let's get to Mexicali Blues in the third slot. And by the <laughs> way, I feel like we we're probably gonna blow through the first disc a little bit. I'm I'm just gonna say this now that like I like I always appreciate getting a full show, and I think especially when this show was released, it was great that fans got a full show. Um, when hearing a full show with this kind of sound quality was much rarer than it is now. Um, but like, I feel like this first disc doesn't need to be there. Like if yeah. you were just trying to create all the essential stuff, this first disc seems expendable to me. And the second and third discs are, are, are money in the bank as far as I'm concerned. But And the earlier uh, 73 disc picks were both uh, either highlights or compiled from multiple shows, right? So disc picks one, of course, is just a partial show. Uh, Dix Picks 14 is two shows sort of mashed together. So you're right. This is the first time they've released a complete 73 show. So if you wanted to get, you know, a, a taste of what 73 was like in its entirety, I guess this is your first chance back in 2000. So we're getting the complete show, which means we're going to hear Mexicali Blues, the first <laughs> of many cowboy songs in this set. You know, I thought it was fine. I like this song. Um, it's picking up the pace a little bit from Sugary, a lot of Bob in general in on this first disc, which, uh, you know, can be a mixed blessing at times. Um, but yeah, I, 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 there's not much else I have to say really about Mexicali Blues. Yeah, I mean, it's another show that uh, it alternates Bob and Jerry in the first set, right? So, well, I guess it's not, it doesn't follow one-to-one that you're getting this push and pull of Jerry doing slow songs and Bob doing fast songs, because that sort of reverses here for the next stretch, but... Yeah, you're right. Uh, Bob is, uh, you know, probably saw a bunch of pictures of like people riding bulls backstage <laughs> and was like, this is it. This is my zone. I'm going to get out my cowboy hat and I'm going to sing all my cowboy songs so that we're going to hear them all today. So that sends us into Tennessee Jed, one of our favorites, of course, <laughs> here at 36 from the Vault. Um, 
I thought this was a good version, actually. I, you know, it's funny because, you know, we're talking about the tempo in this set, and there's examples of songs in this set that are a little bit too slow, but then there's songs that, like, I, I often feel in other contexts are too slow, and then here feel like they're just right. And there's another one coming later on this disc, and this is the first example of that for me. Like, a lot of times, the, the struggle I have with Tennessee Jet is that it just feels like it goes on forever, and it doesn't change very much, and it just gets a little boring. And also the fact that it's like it's on like every Dick's Picks album. Like, <laughs> you hear it all the time. So it's it a little tiresome. Um, but I like this version. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Like coming back to a one drummer, Billy Only Jed makes a big difference because uh, it just swings much better than it ever did with with two drummers and uh, like to my shock i really like this jed i think it, i didn't do a full jed review of all the dicks picks because that would take a long time but i think this might be my favorite tennessee jed we've heard so far maybe it's just grown on me or maybe it you know this one just hits me right because i, I it almost felt like jerry wasn't doing his traditional solo uh, for the song, and it felt a little bit more like a group improvisation than Jed normally gets. And I know a lot of people, when they've you know responded to our Jed hate <laughs> online or Jed dislike, have talked about how Jerry Solo is sort of what attracts people to it. Like people who play guitar find the the Jerry Solo and Jed to be a technical marvel. Uh, this one does not seem to be like that. It seems like he's sitting back and playing some rhythm a little bit more. And I really felt like everybody else was stepping up and filling in spaces. It almost felt a little bit like a bird song from this era where you get that full sort of four-way improvisation, five-way improvisation uh, with Phil and Keith and Bob and everybody contributing melodically instead of just supporting Jerry and Solo. like rain and what stood out to me about this rendition is they either didn't turn donna up or she wasn't on stage at this time like you do not hear donna you don't really hear donna until the end of this disc um and the thing with donna at this time is that she was very pregnant um she actually ended up leaving the tour i believe it was november 25th she uh left the tour so the other two dicks picks from 73 that we've heard so far don't have Donna at all. Um, and I just wonder if she was maybe staggering her appearances on stage at this time mm-hmm. because she would have been like seven months pregnant or so by now. Cause I think she, I, I think she stayed on the road right up until she gave birth or like pretty close to the end. She might've given birth in January. 
Uh, okay. So, but she's already yeah. So six. Okay. Months so she'd along. be like, so she'd be like six months pregnant or so. Yeah. Not fun to be six months pregnant and in, in like a smoky Oklahoma City <laughs> concert venue. I imagine. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So no Donna here, but uh, instead of Donna, we do get the uh, famous Jerry Slide for the first yes. time in a show that has a lot of Jerry Slide. Uh, I do not like the Jerry Slide here. This uh, is where my my early season positivity got me through Promised Land. It got me through Jed. As soon as Jerry got into the slide here, I was like, no, no, this is not this is not for me. Why is that? Is it I feel like you just have this entrenched bias against slide. Because I because he's not playing I can see what you mean. Cause I mean I love slide guitar, so I but I can see how hearing slide in a blues context might be a little boring or uh, overbearing because that's a more stereotypical way of hearing slide. But I feel like Jerry's slide on this song and um I think he's also playing slide in, uh, like in the Dark Star later on. Yeah, oh well, yeah, and and we'll get to that. But that is a that's the exception to my rule. Like I actually like that one quite a bit. But it's like a dreamy slide, you know. Yeah. It's like a hazy slide, and I think it's really beautiful. I think it sounds dreamy and hazy in that it's not in tune <laughs> entirely. Like I, I mean, it's it's so funny that he plays this on the song with the uh, street cats making love. Ever hear the sound of street cats making love? Because that's basically what his slide guitar sounds like. To oh man, cats moaning in the back alley. <laughs> oh, uh, you're stabbing uh, me in the heart. I know. I'm sorry, but I, you know, thinking more seriously about it, I mean, what I like about Jerry Garcia's guitar playing is that he he plays a lot of notes. Like he's 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 a guitar player that is very melodic and very like very very busy, uh, and when he's on slide, I just I don't think it sounds like Jerry. It doesn't sound like his style, and because the the whole approach to slide guitar is is different. It's not about notes. It's more about atmosphere. It's more about like these long held sustained tones, uh, and it's just that to me that's not Jerry Garcia's strong point. I mean he's. Maybe the greatest guitarist of all time, in my opinion, but there's this is one thing that I just think he wasn't, you know, the best at. I don't know. I think that you can hear him playing a ton of notes on most songs, and it's great, but this is a departure. It's a contrast to that, sure. and it still has that tone. You know, it's. It, it, I, I still feel like it, he plays slide in a way that. I can still recognize as him. He's not sounding like Dwayne Allman. He's not sounding like Elmore James or any of the people that, that play in that sort of classic slide style. I feel like a lot of slide players sound the same because they're drawn from the same well. Whereas right. I think Jerry is taking that and he's not playing it in a bluesy way. He's playing it, like you said, to evoke an atmosphere or a feeling, which... On a song like this, I think really works because it's this room, you know, this romantic song. It's a good contrast, I think, to what Bob is doing. And when we get later in the show and we talk about that dark star, I mean, I'm curious to hear why you think that's different. Because I mean, I think his playing on that is amazing. Like I, and I would use that as like Exhibit A for a case for Jerry Garcia being a, a great slide player. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you, you apparently like that. So I'm, I'm just excited to get to that, <laughs> to hear what you have to say about that, to, right? To, like how you differentiate that from this. Um, but now we have to kind of blow through the rest of this disc here <laughs> before we get to the meat of the show. Don't ease me in comes next. Good, solid version. Yep, uh, I like this I, version. Yeah, it's, it's fast. rocking. Yeah, it's good. Uh, do we have anything else to say about it? I think we can move on 
from there. Don't ease as fast. <laughs> Jack Straw is slow. Like if you really want to hear the slow tempo of this of this show in general, I think. Jack Straw is the one that stood out the most to me where I was like, I, it, I, I wrote down here that it almost sounded like looks like rain, like they were playing looks like rain again because they were playing it so slow at the start. I think Phil comes in too early because they're not <laughs> on the usual uh, tempo. He comes in too early vocally. And yeah, Jack Straw, not a song that I want to hear played at this pace. Uh, yeah. This is very like 90s dead. Uh, yeah, or like even like Dead and Company pace. Yeah, Dead and Company <laughs> pace <laughs> where I'm like, this is this is not doing it for me yeah um and it's interesting because this is not considered a, a bobby cowboy song but it's it sort of is you know i mean i think it, we've had this debate before I, I we have my argument is that it should be because somebody gets killed in it uh, right and it, maybe they're not cowboys killing people but they're jumping on trains and they're killing people it's like western enough so maybe it's like a modern revisionist western but it's i mean still... jerry sings on it too maybe yeah. that separates it from it and it's also a really great song so maybe that also separates it from the cowboy category <laughs> which cowboy i mean some of the cowboy songs are great some of them are pretty uh corny and we get yeah. a little bit of both in this show um they love each other is next and this is the fast version of the song although like as we've been saying it's like not it's still like fairly mid-paced but i'd love the fast they love each other i've really come around on it and i love what it brings out of jerry which is the soul singer like the motown aspect of his vocals almost like the smoky robinson creamy sound that he has i think more so with the jerry garcia band like he really pursued that in jgb like actually covering motown songs and really right. letting that crooner side that sweet side of him come out in a way that I don't think it comes out as much in the dead. Um, but speeding this song up, I think brings that out. It just feels like a Motown song to me. So like, I always really respond positively when they play it this way. Yeah. This one too, I think maybe because of the mix, this, I, I would say the show has a really great mix too. It's something we should comment on once they work it out. Very good. Like left to right separation of oh, Jerry yeah. and Bobby, which I always like to hear. Uh, it's a great headphones. And you can hear Bob, you hear Bobby great. Yeah. Especially on the second and third discs. Keith sounds really good and well-balanced. Yeah. Phil, we're going to get into soon. But like this song, particularly what I really enjoyed hearing was Jerry's not really soloing. Bob's kind of somewhere between soloing and rhythm guitar. It just, you had this like sort of dueling rhythm guitar aspect to it that I really like. And we've, we've described this as the Chugal version in the past. And that's kind of like one of the people ask us, what does Chugal mean? I mean, there's a whole Creedence Clearwater song called Keep on Chugaling where he defines Chugaling very clearly in that song. So go to that song and listen to that for homework. It's the Wikipedia of Chugal. It is, exactly. It's set to music, set to a Chugal. It's beautiful. It's like a meta uh, definition. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but w one thing that I find uh, one characteristic of a good chugal is when you don't have somebody really, you don't have the typical lead guitar, rhythm guitar. You've got two interlocking rhythm guitars that create this sort of funky in and out of phase interplay. Uh, and that's something you get on this, on the fast version of They Love Each Other that uh, you maybe don't hear in a lot of dead songs because Bobby and Jerry are playing more traditional lead and rhythm roles so yeah. and billy sounds really good on this too uh billy we, we argued about this a little bit in the notes and i think it has to do with maybe the slower tempos like billy in this first set feels like he's sort of to me feels like he's waking up after uh, a few weeks off where he's like surprisingly loose in some places it almost sounds like the looseness of a two drummer dead instead of what i come to expect from rock solid tight 
one drummer dead, Billy dead. He sounds really good on this one uh, and is a little bit surprisingly sloppy to me on some of the other songs in this well, set, but here he's really good. This is where we argued about it. In, it let's just skip El Paso. Like We, got nothing we can to say skip El Paso. That. Sorry, El Paso. This is like, I'll just say that's my least favorite cowboy song <laughs> at this point. It, is this a bathroom break? No, I'm bath- I do have a bathroom break that's going right. to come later, but it's my least favorite. I just feel like there's not much you can do with it. I yeah you know, I I mean I like the original I like, I like the Marty Robbins version but I, I it always just feels like filler to me when the dead play it but let's go to Ro Jimmy because this was a, a disagreement that we had in the notes like because you said that you don't like what Billy is doing on here you feel like it's too busy yeah exactly it's very slow Ro Jimmy in fact they obviously slow it down after it starts like somebody I think Jerry sort of forces a slower tempo and then I don't maybe it leaves Billy in sort of a no man's land for me uh because he's kind of doing too much for how slow the song is in my opinion yeah I mean we've heard other road jimmies from this period and I feel like he often does this very syncopated almost playing around the beat type rhythm I actually quite like that like I mentioned earlier that Tennessee Jed was a song that often feels lurching to me and it I actually feel like it's played at a pretty good pace in this set, even though everything else is a little slack. And this is the other song that I feel like, with all the tempo issues, they kind of hit upon accidentally the right tempo for me for this song. Um, Because this is a song that can feel like it's a half hour long (laughs) at times when you listen to it. It can feel very slow. And I've said this before that, like, I like the older Dead playing this. I think there's a certain haunting quality that is teased out of Jerry when he plays Ro Jimmy in the early nineties that I really like. Um, but I, I think Bill is like what makes this Ro Jimmy for me. I like what he's playing and it makes it a little more interesting rhythmically to me. Like I listen to him more than anyone else when I, mm-hmm. when I listen to this version, let's get out of this disc. We got out of the first <laughs> disc. Cause again, I feel like this disc feels very expendable to me in comparison yeah. to the other two. The other two, I think, are pretty excellent. This first one is pretty good. I mean, it's still 73 dead. Mm-hmm. But when I revisit this album, I will listen to the first disc the least. I listened to it for this show because of my commitment to the 36 from the Vault listeners <laughs> to give I'm, my commentary on it. I'm also happy. I think uh, we would have been a lot more annoyed with it if it had come later in the season. Like, this is a good <laughs> slow ramp back into the pool of the Grateful Dead. Like you don't want to you don't want to jump right in with this plane in the band because it's it's your typical very dense plane in the band. I love it though. I, I'm 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 like, yeah, maybe they could have uh put put the promised land here and then just jump into plane <laughs> Straight in the to band. Plan. Yeah. You know, maybe do some kind of editing there or do, you know, promised land and like what was the second song that they did that they did uh sugary the slow sugary and then go into uh the plane in the band. where Phil makes his 
like real like his presence is felt yeah on oh, this yeah. song he makes an entrance yeah and i think they could have called this album phil comes alive <laughs> if, it, if it had been a two-disc set they could have called yeah. it phil comes alive because with a picture of phil like gazing oh, into man. the stage lights with rocking that bass yeah and i'm guessing he had the beard already at this point too which i think is like did he? Because I know he didn't. He didn't seventy four. Maybe he didn't already have it in seventy three. Right. It's a good question. We've talked about before how seventy four is peak Phil. Oh like yeah, capital P, capital P, peak Phil. He is looking great. He's he got looks that great. great beard. He's got the headband. He's, he's got, got the huge strap, the huge oh, like bass strap. Yeah, the amazing. big like red, white, and blue strap. He's like, yeah. or, it's not the red, white, and blue one. You're right. It's like a leather one. Yeah. He's got hit the wall of sound behind him. Behind him, oh, where yeah. he's got different speakers for every string of his guitar. He's got sea stone sets with his buddy Ned, where he just oh, is yeah. playing weird noise and inflicting it upon deadheads in between sets. He's so loud, and so it's kind of an interesting in '73 because I think we're we're not quite to peak Phil yet. It's like you get flashes of peak Phil in this show, but you. Don't don't get the full peak fill experience. Uh, I mean, Dix Picks One famously had the bass solo edited out. Right. So Phil was maybe feeling his oats a little bit too much in that show. But in this show, especially with this playing in the band, dropping fill bombs, dropping some really kind of aggressive bass lines where it almost feels like he's directing things at times. Like, like around the 430 mark. Like I made a note of that. He's just killing it. And, and, and this speaks to like what you were saying before about the mix of these albums where you really do hear everybody with with great clarity. And, you know, Jerry's obviously soloing, like, his ass off over all this, but what Phil and Keith and Billy are doing on this song is, like, what really commanded my attention. You know, there's a moment around 8.30 where they're playing brilliantly off each other. I feel like there's, like, a wave every three minutes where they make this transition where they just are going crazy and it sounds great. Yeah, and they're, they're kicking it up a notch, and I don't know, I I was loving it. I we've talked about like the Goldilocks theory with playing in the band that it can be too short or it can be way too long. This was like right in the middle for me. I I this is like where I want to be. I think with playing. Yeah, I mean the, the 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 sleepy first disc gets shaken off right away with this playing in the band. I think, and it's I think Phil takes charge in a way that doesn't let the rest of the band sleep this one off. Because yeah, you're right. It's like a good. You know, 10, 11, 12 minutes of this playing in the band is just one of those really dense playing in the bands where everybody is going full blast. Uh, I find that kind of exhausting if it goes on too long, but I agree that this one is kind of just right. Somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes, I think, is where I would scientifically define our Goldilocks playing in the band period. And what I really like about this one, I, I, I agree with you, that first part is really great. Uh, but what I really like here is in, uh, it's around the 13th minute. Yeah. where it downshifts and it sounds like it's going right back into uh the the vocals like you hear jerry kind of he's he's poodling about around the uh <laughs> the the play and riff but instead of jumping right back into it they spend a good three minutes in sort of this airy spacey territory that i really like a lot uh he's got a really cool sort of watery tone that he's using a lot in this show in that part and it, it, it's just like you know coming over the the crest of this really dense jam into sort of zero gravity territory which i like because i think you know 74 has so much space to the sound of the grateful dead there's so much room there's so much air there's so much sort of jazziness and swing this show really feels like one of those transitional shows where they hit upon that every every so often there's some flashes of that but it's not the dominant sound of the dead yet uh but uh here especially and then uh, again in the dark star you're getting those moments that make this era so special uh where they've sort of 
figured out a way, a new new territory to explore where they maybe take the foot off the gas a little bit uh, and play a little more atmospherically instead of uh, heavy on the notes. China Writer, which I think just carries over that feeling of the first disc feeling a little superfluous because, you know, we're getting into some real great war horses right away on the second disc. And um, I'm trying not to take this China Writer for granted because I think China Writer in general from this period is always great. You know, you don't get many substandard China Writers, I don't think. Um, I don't know if this is like the best one I ever heard, but I... Loved hearing it. I thought it was really solid. Not much else jumped out to me other than that. I don't know about you. Well, it's it's hard not to compare this one to the Dick's Picks 12 China Writer, right. uh, which is from June of 74. So a few months later, but it's it's doing the thing from this era where they drop that feeling groovy jam in between China and Writer as sort of a, a transition from the China jam to the Writer jam uh, or to the song part of Writer. Uh, so, you know, having that part there it feels a little less spontaneous. Like I always thought what before I knew more about this era, like the Dick's Picks 12 China writer, I'm like, Oh man, this is such a great spontaneous jam in the middle of this. Well, no, they were doing that in pretty much every China writer through this time period. Uh, but I do really like how tight they are dropping into it. Uh, I don't know if there was a hand signal or something, but they are like in at the drop of a hat, like into the feeling groovy jam. So it's been, uh, it, you know, it's not as good as that version. It doesn't have sort of the extra intro jam that the Dick's Picks 12 one does. I was going to say that the intro jam to the 12 is what jumps out to me. Like when I think yeah. about that, that's the thing I remember that really distinguishes it from other, from a lot of other China writers mm -hmm. uh, where you're just like, wow, they haven't even gotten into the meat of china and i'm already having my face jammed off here this is this right. is amazing we go into me and my uncle because every disc needs at least one cowboy <laughs> song <laughs> at least two i think it is well i mean this three oh no not, no but no we, yeah there's two on this disc it's fine you know i again i feel like compared to other things that we're going to be hitting or that we've just heard this is kind of a skippable track, but it's still solid. Right. The problem, the issues I had with Billy in the first set, 
have disappeared by the second set. I right. Think Billy, Billy is killing it in the second set. And I thought, you know, this Me and My Uncle was a good example of like a song that you would normally hear him doing something special on. But I think he is playing it a little more jazzy than usual. And that's the other thing about 74 that they're working towards is this more jazzy, like fusion-y sound that they explore a lot more on those 74 dicks picks. Me and My Uncle is a song that later on they would disco up a lot. And this one, I thought they were kind of, he was kind of jazzing it up a little bit, which yeah. made it slightly different than your typical country rock yeah i mean yeah songs like this it really does come down to someone like billy adding some new element to it just to break up the monotony of, yeah again because i feel like similar to el paso on the first disc it feels a little bit like filler you know i don't know to what degree they wanted to instead the china writer do you then downshift into something that's a little less intense before you go into something else you know it just seems like it's something easier to play Maybe. Well, I, I think what a lot of people listen to, a lot of deadheads, not me, <laughs> but what a lot of deadheads listen to on the Bobby Cowboy songs is that it's basically just an opportunity for Jerry to solo the whole song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because he doesn't really have to sing and he can just kind of noodle poodle over the entire uh, track. And I think there's a song coming up where that's definitely true. And that's something. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I've been, I've been kind of taking a dump on cowboy songs. My favorite cowboy song is coming up in a little bit and on the other it, side it, of your other favorite song just because it's just jerry ripping it up i think it's the best right. example of that um but before we get to that we have the greatest grateful dead song of all time <laughs> mississippi half step everyone knows this is the greatest grateful dead song of all time so yeah um and i actually quite like this version this is one of those songs where to me it can be a little too mellow i always like it when it has a little more muscle to it a little more energy and then i feel like that comes out in jerry's solo you know which is the thing that always you know that people always look forward to you know when that solo has a little extra fire to it i think this song really can be lifted up and you know we think about that version from english town i think that's like the the classic version the, the dicks picks 15 it's like considered one of the greatest of all time not on that level but i thought it was good i thought i, I enjoyed it yeah i think i like i prefer this one to the dicks picks one version because it has donna on it and I think yes. Donna really makes the outro part uh, way better. It's a little bit of like we talked about whether they were promoting Wake of the Flood or not. Uh, I guess Half Step is kind of like the single from Wake of the Flood. It's not really an album that has any short, singleable songs. But it, I would say, I mean, Eyes of the World, I guess, is sort of catchy, but is never going to be digestible for radio and half step is you know it leads off the album and i think it's maybe what they considered to be the radio track uh from that record but anyway this kind of seemed like a very tight concise sort of radio friendly live version it's only a couple minutes longer than the album version and it the jerry solo in the middle is pretty restrained as far as how long it is so i you know it was fine it's well played and but it did feel a little bit like this is the first song off on new album uh sort of moment in the show hey everybody we got a record called wake of the flood man yeah. except for a single <laughs> raise your hands everybody let's clap you know do the rhythmic did, did the dead ever do that i don't think they ever did that like you well know, they did the, the not fade old. away there's the not fade away oh, that's clap, true. i guess uh, that's true so that they, they're not totally uh but innocent. i don't but, but they but didn't the crowd do that on their own like or was like because like jerry wasn't like putting the hands over his head were they or did they encourage people to do that i, I, I don't remember. think jerry would but i think i think bob I, I have a feeling i've seen bob do that everybody put <laughs> your hands together yeah it sounds like something he would do doesn't it i don't but you never hear that on you never hear any like uh crowd interaction like that 
mm-hmm. on the recordings. There's never any of the like, you know, we were supposed to play in Texas last night, but they don't know how to rock. You guys know how to rock. <laughs> like Oklahoma <laughs> people do. <laughs> they never do any of that stuff. Uh I did wonder if they keep playing songs that reference Texas, and I know that, you know, at least football-wise, Oklahoma and Texas have a big rivalry, and I wonder if people in Oklahoma, maybe if they didn't feel condescended to, they were, like, put off. That's true. (laughs) They just keep referencing the Rio Grande and El Paso, and uh, Big River doesn't go through Texas, but it's a lot of... uh, Not a lot of fan service. I don't don't think the dead at this time were worried about the fan service, or else they might have worked up, like, an Oki from the Scope cover or something, or, you know, like a John... Like a J.J. Kale cover? I think he's from Oklahoma. But yeah, they, they weren't interested in that. We get to Big River next, and I alluded to this earlier. This is my this has become my favorite cowboy song. This was a revelation I had in season two, much to my surprise that I found myself like getting pretty excited when Big River was on, just because I feel like it's the fastest paced cowboy song. And it always has a great Jerry Garcia guitar solo on it. Like it's I feel like it's like half guitar solo, if not more. Entirely guitar solo, I feel like. Yeah, he he just kind of rips the whole time because he doesn't have anything else to do. Yeah, yeah. So I really appreciate it for that, and um, I I really enjoyed this version. I thought it was great. It's like, yeah, this is the cowboy song I like. I actually appreciated that this was. I mean, is this like the fastest song they've played? I guess this or Promised Land. <laughs> it might be. Yeah, would be like the most upbeat song that they've played so far. So I really appreciated it for that. And they wake you up just in time to put you to bed. Give you a nice, big, warm tea spiked with something illicit and ease you into disc three. Oh, yes. An incredibly sleepy Dark Star, which, you know, the sleepiness may not have been a good thing for that first set, but here it works beautifully, I think. And, I, you know, both of us, I think, listen to a lot of Dark Stars for, around this show for comparison, and they were a lot more like hard driving, I thought, uh, than this one, which is just like easing in about as slowly as you ever hear uh, Dark Star being played which i think really works to its benefit here i really liked it yeah this is actually like one of my favorite dark stars like i like this era of dark star a lot it's definitely it's about as far as you can get from like live dead dark star you know mm-hmm. the supercharged primal dead tearing your head off type dark stars or the, or the dark star from uh dick's picks four you know that we've often talked about this is much dreamier much spacier this is like the dark star you want to hear if you're smoking a joint at dusk you know in your backyard (laughs) and you're just feeling serene it's just such a beautiful rendition and you mentioned some of the other dark stars from this time like i listened to the dark star from madison that's uh, october 25th which it's actually more freeform than this the 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 mind left body jam isn't as big of a part of it and there's almost this space jam in the middle. It reminds me of the second disc of Dick's Picks 1, 
like where they go into that nobody's fault but mine jam after trucking. And then the Dark Star from November 11th. The Winterland, yeah. The Winterland one, which is 35 minutes. I think this is 26 minutes total. So mm-hmm. that was, yeah. you know, it's quite a bit longer. That was closer to this. I don't know. Did you listen to that one? Yeah, I thought that one was even a little bit pepped up compared to this one. This one just seems like the, the most relaxed Dark Star of this fall, of, of the big Dark Star Mind Left Body Jam. Uh, it's fall 73 versions. Now, okay, so we talked about this earlier. You saying you don't like the Jerry slide on right. Looks Like Rain, but you like it here, which makes me glad because I think, I mean, on this song and on Weather Report Suite, I think are my favorite examples of Jerry slide from this period where it's him and in both, like the beginning of the Weather Report Suite, like the first part of it, like very languid musical settings, very beautiful. And his slide having this, again, very dreamy, soft, evocative feeling to it. Again, Mm-hmm. I was I associate slide guitar with a more aggressive sound. It's it's like a stinging sound almost. Yeah. Um. Certainly in a blues context, it has that. But Jerry, he inverts it where he he makes it soft instead of shooting out. It's like inward, and I think it works beautifully here. I mean, what what's the difference on this song for you versus other? Well, it's funny you say that because I feel like it's a lot more aggressive than the other examples on this show. So compared to like the Looks Like Rain or the Road Jimmy Jerry slides, it's a little bit maybe closer to what you're talking about a more typical slide guitar is. And what I like what I like about the Mind Left Body Jam, most of the time when it was played in this era, whether it was in Dark Star or sometimes in Weather Report Suite and other places, uh, is that it has this cool alternating structure to it yeah. where you get like a sort of like loud rave up rock part and then you get the like descending chords, uh, soft, dreamy, cosmic part. Jerry is playing slide through both of those and I like just the, the, the different flavor it brings to that alternating sound, which, you know, you get sort of the, the introverted uh, slide that you're talking about, the introspective slide, and also like a more rave up blues guitar slide uh, when the song perks up. So I don't know. I did, it, it's hard to describe, but I like it a lot here. I think it's just a really, it, it's the highlight of the entire set for me, the, that first five minutes of the Mind Love Body Jam track, uh, because it's just really unique for a dark star to kind of go in that direction at this time. I mean, it sort of went there a few more times in the rest of the year, but I really like the version here, and I think it's better than the other Mind Love Body Jams that we've heard uh, in earlier Dick's picks.
I think this is the one that I always think of when people talk about the Vineland Body Jam. Like this is the one you go to. And again, I, I love this this Dark Star. It was, you know, I said this earlier that this was a, one of the first Dick's picks I I had. So it was pretty formative for me. And I think '73, just in general, hit me pretty early as a dead era. I liked a lot. And I think mm-hmm. it was because of it's such a pretty era to me. I think like the jams are so pretty. It doesn't have, I mean, I love the kinetic quality that you get from like primal dead, but even that can get a little exhausting if I hear a whole show of it. Whereas Mm -hmm. this kind of dark star, I I can listen to that and never really get sick of it. It's so soothing and spiritual to me. And that's why I enjoyed listening to some of these other dark star, my left body jams from, around this period. I, I will say that I think the November 11th, the Winterland show, it's not quite as good as this one, but it's really great. Um, and that show in general is great. I think that that Madison show, the 1025, uh, is also really great. And um, what's interesting about it is those two shows go from Dark Star, Mind Left Body Jam to Eyes of the World. I think they both do mm-hmm. that. Whereas yeah. this show goes into Morning Dew. And it's a beautiful version of Morning Dew with, some incredible Phil bombs. There's this one huge Phil bomb in the middle. That's awesome. <laughs> and by the way, Phil is great in the dark star mind lift body jam. We didn't really talk about Phil there, but yeah, he's got that. Um, it, it's kind of standard for the time. The solo right after they sing the first verse Yeah, may have been the type of solo that he would have edited out <laughs> in the earlier days of Dick's picks, but sounds really good. Yeah. In the same way that we, I liked it. Yeah. I, I actually really liked it too. In the same way that like we talked about how the Dick's picks for dark star, when you listen to the other dark stars around it, you realize there was sort of a formula for the way dark star went. It wasn't just a totally free exploration. Like 73 dark stars also do kind of map out, um, from like spacey 10 minutes, then the first verse, then a fill solo, then mind left body jam, then, uh, sort of this noisy, uh, really, dissonant freeform part which you get about five minutes of here too uh not as big a fan of that part i mean i i, I generally like the grateful dead like feedback sections but it's just like after the mind left body jam it's a little bit of a, a walk back i mean i feel like that works better here than it does on on ten twenty five. i think that that noisy part feels like it's more pronounced mm-hmm. on ten twenty five. it doesn't resolve quite as well i'll, I'll say like ten twenty five overall might be a better show than this but it this Dark Star Mind Left Body Jam is so good. I my feeling is that that's why this was picked. Whereas I think like ten twenty five is a better like the like the first set I think is better. Like the set list is certainly better. So that's like with Bertha, and I forget what comes after that. But it's it's a more consistent listen I think. But it doesn't have the peaks that this has. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm curious what Dave Lemieux, Lemieux would say about that. I feel like this is why this was picked first and foremost. Right. I think that's the the debate to have about this volume, which it's an excellent Grateful Dead show, but 73 is so rich with great Grateful Dead shows that I could see an argument for why this maybe wasn't the best pick from this little mini run here. And maybe that's because of including the first set where it's sort of a little bit inconsistent. Uh, But we're in the disc, you know, one of the best discs in all of Dick's picks. Yeah, exactly. Perhaps. This disc three is just like wall to wall excellence it's so great and i think again my feeling is that pushed it over the top because that first mm-hmm. disc is still good you know we're we're spoiled now because we hear everything and you can compare right. it to other things if you had gotten this in the year 2000 it would have been awesome 
you would have been excited to hear uh, El Paso in the first disc, you know, in, in such good sound quality. And hey, this Dark Star would go uh, very nicely while you're listening to Kid A in October 2000. That's true. It, exactly. I think there is I mean, something... even Keith is even playing the Rhodes, uh, you know, got in the Rhodes. Of, uh, everything in its right place uh, analog. So it's... Uh... And there is almost like an ambient feel to it at times. It's, right. I don't know. It's so beautiful. And so yeah, to me, like, whatever else you want to say about this, this part of the record, it just justifies the mm-hmm. whole package. Yeah. I'm so glad. This is one of the tracks in all of Grateful Dead canon that I go to the most. Mm -hmm. Again, especially in the summertime, if I'm out in my yard at dusk, this is just great music to uh to vibe out to. Mm -hmm. From there we go into the morning dew, and this is a beautiful version of the morning dew, as we said, great feel bomb at about I guess six minutes six minutes or so before the Jerry solo. It really sounds like he's gonna blow out the speakers like michael j fox back to the future style like it is gonna like, blow that huge roof off of this uh off of this building you've got this great mix everything sounds good and it's like it's it's putting the needles in the red you can tell uh so yeah the fill bomb phenomenon is something that sometimes confuses me when deadheads talk about it but uh if you want to know what it is yeah listen to right around six minutes into the morning dew where yeah. he is just like rattling the entire building it's Titanic. It's pretty awesome. I will say, and this is a small quibble, but after listening to some of the other shows from around this time, because again, like a lot of the set lists are pretty similar from this tour. I have to say I prefer going from the Dark Star, My Left Body Jam into Eyes of the World, which I know they do for sure at Winterland. I think they also do it at the Madison show. Morning Dew, to me, it's such a climactic song that if you have it too early, it feels a little like an anticlimax. That's a small quibble because I think the performance itself is really good. I think if I'm going to nitpick, I want to continue the bliss and the beauty of Dark Star into Eyes of the World. I think that's a better transition. Morning Dew to me feels a little bit different. It's more of like a folky thing, whereas Eyes of the World and this Dark Star are more of like a jazzy type, yeah. type feel. And so that would be my, my small complaint of an otherwise great disc. I do think this do it has a slightly different flavor than your typical like emotional catharsis climax morning do. Like I almost felt like Jerry was playing a little more of like a like a sort of boogie style in the end jam than this, you know, sort of classic jammy peak going from like start low and slow and build up to a, a big high passionate climax he really does do the big like fanning fast chord climax to it but uh, the way right. there is less of a linear rise than your typical do and more of kind of a a, a sideways jam which makes it kind of interesting yeah you know as good as this disc is in the overall structure of the show the pacing is very strange because <laughs> we'll talk about this so they go from do to the sugar magnolia is like the big set closer and, and it's a good sugar magnolia it's a little bit ragged but ragged sugar magnolia but they they end the set and then there's two encores here so i don't i'm not entirely sure what was going on with maybe they thought curfew was earlier than it was or maybe they were just having such a great time playing for a half full oklahoma city arena that they decided to reward the crowd uh with a double encore but uh yeah it's a little bit strange that you get morning dew here uh and then go into you know some of the songs we're about to get into as extremely long encore plays yeah, like the Sugar Magnolia, it just, again, it, it, it makes me feel like, oh, Morning Dew and Sugar Magnolia should be like a couple songs later. Yeah. It should, it should go after the eyes of the world 
and we have Stella Blue after that. Yeah, it's like it's uh, and, it's out of order in a weird way. Yeah, it feels a little out of order. And I think when I listen to this, I often will skip these two songs. I'll skip Morning Dew and Sugar Man. No, even though they're both great, I love them. But I, the stars of the disc for me are the Dark Star, My Left Body Jam, and, and, and going into Eyes of the World. Did, did, did you just uh, admit to bathroom breaking Morning Dew? Cause that... No, I'm not bathroom breaking. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know. That, it... that, that could, uh, yeah, our, our, our listenership would really uh, riot over that one, I think. No, I didn't. I mean, I I, I actually really like this the Sugar Magnolia. It's kind of like a, a relatively jammy yeah. version of it. Like, this can be a pretty straightforward song. This is often like the play the people to the parking lot yeah. song. So they, they stretch it out a little bit. I think it's a great version. I, I'm just talking about, because like I've listened to Dick's Picks 19. This was like among my most listened to Dick's Picks before we did this show. So for my own pleasure, when I listen to this, I will often skip to Eyes of the World just because I'm, in, I'm impatient. And I'm like, I want to be in this blissful mind space. Because, you know, I've talked on this show, Eyes of the World is my favorite Grateful Dead song. And 7374 is such a great eyes of the world period for all our complaining about tempo in this episode they really played it perfectly at this time because we've talked about like 77 eyes of the world's feeling a little bit too fast sometimes and certainly when you get into the 80s there's like just berserker eyes of the worlds where it just sounds like scarface stopped by and (laughs) dumped a mountain of cocaine on them and then they played eyes of the world i don't know this version i thought was 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 fantastic yeah this is a beautiful eyes. And I do think a, a little bit of it is what we were talking about earlier, like the freedom from not having to work with some strangers playing saxophone and trumpet over over the top of it uh, really helps. Uh, and But in the same way, maybe playing with some jazz musicians is part of the reason why Eyes of the World got progressively jazzier and swingier as 73 went on and into 74. Yeah. Uh, so maybe it, you know, if, if nothing else, maybe the horns tour helps with that, with just the band finding this really nice tempo, really nice airy arrangements that starts to pay off here. Cause I don't know if it's one, you know, the greatest eyes of the world ever. It's got some pretty stiff competition, but if you picked one sort of iconic, version to play for somebody to describe why eyes of the world was so good in 73 and 74 i think this one would would qualify yeah it's great i mean that winterland version is great too and the winterland version might have an edge for me just because again it's packaged with dark star and my left body jam and so you have about an hour like maybe 50 minutes of just pure bliss for me like that is my favorite grateful dead i think about like the middle guitar solos that Jerry plays in Eyes of the World is probably like my favorite music mm-hmm. in the Grateful Dead canon. Like, like a 73, 74 eyes, those middle solos, there's nothing wrong in the world when you're listening to that. It's so idyllic and beautiful to me. Yeah. And yeah, this is an outstanding version.
This one has, that solo has like a very interesting coda too, which sort of gets into a little weirder territory. And I'm not sure it entirely works, to be honest, but there was part of it where it almost sounded like a premonition of Slipknot. I don't know if you yeah. caught that little, little, little piece, but. Uh, I love that. Yeah. I loved it. It picks up an intensity mm-hmm. for sure. And it comes down to like some, like a sort of darker area, which maybe sort of helps with the, the transition into Stella Blue as sort of a, uh, uh, a, a companion piece uh, to the ebullience of Eyes of the World. You get this sort of mournful, mournful dirge at the end. And and it's interesting because this is the slot where I feel like Morning Dew should have been. Mm-hmm. And instead we have we have Stella Blue, which is a song that we associate with you know the climactic ballad at the end. Morning Dew is the A list, and then Stella Blue and Warfrat would be like the B list closers. But we're getting both closers now. And it feels like a little anticlimactic. You've had this beautiful Eyes of the World, and then you have Stella Blue. And we kind of get back to them playing maybe a little too slow. Although I feel like Stella Blue always delivers no matter the era when Jerry starts playing the solo. Mm -hmm. Jerry usually would step up and kill it on the solo. And this version is no exception. Yeah, it's a a pretty short version. It's a a little bit like the half step where it's kind of like the tight radio version to some extent it works fine i mean maybe this is another reason why they did the double encore is like ending on stella blue is too much of a bummer (laughs) (laughs) and so bob is like we gotta we gotta give him one more berry to send him home but uh yeah it's 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 just a very interesting end to this set and it's a disc you know again where it's mostly jerry it's yeah, you know, four Jerry songs to two Bob songs. Uh, makes it sort of unique for that reason as well. Uh, instead of slipping into the sort of autopilot of alternating songs, so yeah, a very unique way to close out this show for sure. Well, we're not quite done yet because we got one more song called Johnny Be Good. <laughs> Bob stepping up, and this is where I'm gonna bathroom break, oh, everybody. You've been holding it the whole show. I'm out of here. I'm hitting the head. I'm getting to the car. I'm going to be traffic. Right. It's like if you're on a dead show and you hear Johnny Be Good, you're like, okay, we're almost done. Yeah. And it's going to be a pain in the ass to get out of here. Right. So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely bathroom breaking it and then heading to the car. They're not doing Johnny Be Good into Dark Star Reprise. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? Like if I left and then you're like, oh, dude. Yeah. They came back They out. came back. They had to sing that second verse they forgot to sing earlier. And like Lowell George was there, and uh, Greg Allman was there. They're all everybody was playing slide. It was great. You would have loved it. <laughs> Keith Richards decided that he loved the dead. That's right. He showed up. They He's went in a midnight guitar. rambler. You missed it, man. Johnny, be good. It was like a, it was like a, it was an epic. They just kicked it into like another right yeah. jam. You blew it. That's what that's what always happens. That's what happens. They keep you guessing. I missed the jam of the century. So we came back, season three. And they finish us off with a, a, a double berry bookend just to welcome us back on the tour. So I can't, I can't think of a more poetic way to, to celebrate the start of a new season. Yep. Great 73 show. It was a blast. And I think we were pretty sharp this episode. You know, I noticed that like when we posted our trailer that we didn't introduce ourselves, <laughs> which we always forget to do. But we right. did it in this episode. We did. I think that's a good sign that maybe we're going to have our stuff together a little bit better than, than normal. Well, like we said in that trailer, where this is, we're, we're, if, you, if you hadn't heard it, the, the metaphor I used was that the first season was our primal era of six, yep. 60s dead analog to uh 36 Fresh face kids exactly didn't quite know what we were doing uh, a lot nope. of sound sound problems pure play, instinct playing out of tune all that stuff piss and vinegar 
Yeah. Seventy season two was our seventies era where we got a yep. little we got a little deeper. We yep. we we started writing better songs. We had a yep. oh, yeah. a, a deeper catalog. Uh, yep. the, the shows got a little longer. Maybe a lot longer. Building, building the following. <laughs> exactly. We're going out to the going out to the country. You know, we're 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 exposing ourselves to new audiences. That's right. Season three, however, this is eighties dead. This is the eighties dead. If we're lining up, uh, it's it's a little slicker. Maybe yep. a little, maybe a little safe. We'll see. Yep. We're a little beardier, a little grayer. Yep. By the end of the season, we're going to be in a stadium doing this show. That's true. And. Our original fans from the first and second seasons, they're going to feel alienated because there's going to be all these college bros hanging out, not listening to the show. They're just going to be like partying outside of the show, (laughs) like where people are listening to the show. Like they're going to be partying outside of people's houses. I think those are the people that uh, yell at us on Twitter, but don't listen to the show. Those are the parking lot heads. And then 90s Dead will be our fourth season and one of us will die in the middle of that. <laughs> so, so stay tuned to find out. <laughs> and and then a, a more handsome and younger person will eventually replace the person who dies. Who's really into watches and fashion. And we'll, we'll continue on and be more popular than ever exactly. after that. I can't wait to find out what our touch of gray is going to be because that should come up. Some halfway through this season. Yeah. Well, one of us will be in a coma, I guess, <laughs> okay. at, the mid, at the midpoint, which is pretty dramatic. Uh, but then come back better right. than ever after that. This is getting darker um, and darker. I don't know. I don't know if I like this analogy anymore. <laughs> that's true. Our next episode is going to be Dick's Picks 20, uh, and we're going to 1976. Nice. Which we have not been yeah, to yet. First visit think. to 76. I'm, I'm excited. And it's yeah. two sh- bringing two shows together. Uh, it's kind of like... Uh, two-thirds of two different shows a four disc yeah. of dicks picks so four discs get ready Woo. uh settle in sit in a comfy chair for that one uh it shows from uh landover maryland the cap center and then yep. uh syracuse new york so back on the east coast back in back in deadhead territory uh it's gonna be a good time i think on the centennial i'm glad we didn't have that one as our season three premiere because to go right into a four disker heavy i don't lifting. know i think one of us would have passed out i think but we're not in shape yet we're like uh we're still a little bit in spring training i think we gotta yeah. we gotta build up our arm strength this was like our oklahoma city show that's right 73 you know they had to play themselves into it and then by the end we're gonna be smoking right it'll be great did we have a skeevy overture i don't remember Probably it was kind of skeevy. I think so. You know, we had, we had the MacGruber. <laughs> That's riff. true. Skeevy that, enough. That might have been a little skeevy. Yeah, it's all right though. Our audience is full of skeevy people, so exactly. I think they embrace. They love it. The skeeviness. So, well, thank you again for listening to this episode of Thirty Six from the Vault. We'll be back with more Dead in our next episode. Yep, we'll see you in two weeks. Thirty Six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brickman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of Thirty Six from the Vault is RJB. Houston. 
This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is a rock and roll city for sure. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzard. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.